I'm Laura Max Rose, mother of two, and you're listening to Look Ma No Hands, my candid dispatches from the front lines of motherhood. I ask the real, tough, honest questions on motherhood-related topics that we're all wanting to know more about, in hopes it will make everyone's journey fulfilling, easier, and more joyful. If you're not a mom, welcome. I want you to know how happy I am that you're listening and that these topics can be applied to any season of life. I'm grateful you're along for the ride. Welcome back to Look Ma No Hands. I am your host, Laura Max Rose, and I am joined today by Dr. Josh Mermelli out of Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mermelli. Thank you so much. Please feel free to call me Josh. It sounds much okay. more serious when you say Dr. Mermelli. So I feel like we're friends now because we've only talked twice on the phone, but it was a very instant connection, I feel. I, so I, I can agree. call you Josh. Yeah, we're basically besties, which might be unhealthy attachment, but I feel really (laughs) It's okay. You know, at this point, I'll take unhealthy attachment because given how isolated we all are, I feel like it's great to find someone I can just chat with. You are a psychologist, again, out of Los Angeles. You focus on empowerment, wellness, connectivity, daily aspiration, and affirmative content on your Instagram. And you talk a lot about trauma conflict resolution, recovery, all of this comes from your own journey of recovery. I would love to hear a little bit about that from your own words, if you want to share that with us. Of course. Well, you're really going just for the jugular right on. I appreciate that about you. And, you know, look, one of the (laughs) things is that I am in recovery from substance use and frankly, just from life. I've been sober for around eight years and I work a lot with folks who have a history of all different types of addiction, ranging from drug and alcohol dependence to what we refer to in the field as process addiction. So things like compulsive overeating or compulsive sexual behaviors, um, compulsivity with regards to gambling um, and other types of gaming addiction. Um, so so my own journey in, in my personal recovery has definitely, I think, humanized and made more relatable the element of you know being able to treat trauma through a professional lens and to treat addiction through a professional lens. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine. And we're going to get to all that because I think even if maybe you didn't struggle um, mentally or have any type of addiction in your own personal past, um, perhaps the pandemic has brought some of that up for you because um, Josh, you mentioned to me before we started chatting um, in early March, 32% of Americans were reporting some amount of depression and now we're up to 50%. That's as of mid-July. So the number could be higher or lower. Um, As of right now, um, many Americans reporting difficulty sleeping, um, increasing their food or alcohol dependence, um, and other types of stressors. So I definitely want to discuss that with you and what that's been like in your practice. But the thing I was the most excited for, um, the most excited to talk to you about today is what I'm going to start with. When you and I were chatting about having this conversation and what we wanted to address, we started off talking about conflict resolution, which is something that I haven't taken an entire podcast episode to discuss. But I think right now, especially with so many of us sort of sectioned off with the same people going on six or seven months now, that's a really handy tool to learn more about. But more importantly, I want to talk about our primal instincts, which are what 
I see coming out right now. I noticed the second the lockdown ended, I went right to Target because of course that was destination numero uno for me. If you know me, I'm there a minimum of once a day. And I was in the Target parking lot and I saw two otherwise very normal human beings in an absolute public shouting match with each other, which was something I'd never really seen before in that pub- in that Target parking lot. Kind of wrote it off, thought, okay, maybe they're having a bad day. Walked inside, a couple was fighting with each other in the same type of manner and noticed that this kind of kept coming up over and over again and almost to a degree kind of became the norm. I've noticed it settling down just a little bit, but on the internet, it certainly hasn't. Um, We're seeing so many politically charged arguments, so much divisiveness. And I've even noticed in myself, I've discussed this with a lot of friends of mine that I'll get a text message in the middle of the day that's maybe I misunderstand the message or maybe I just um, not in the best place when I read it. And my instinct is to be direct in my response, perhaps in a way that's almost overdoing it. I mean, I feel very reactive. And, you know, luckily I know myself well enough that I take a minute when I feel that way, but I've been feeling that way a lot more often. And this is with people that I'm not very close with. So maybe an acquaintance sends me a message and it rubs me the wrong way. And I just kind of want to jump out of my screen. And I think what I'm seeing at Target and what I'm seeing online is really all related to that. And why is it, Josh, that we are collectively collectively experiencing this sort of reversion to our primal instincts right now? You're, you know, you ask such a fabulous question and you're right. I mean, I, who knew that going to Target or Sephora was the equivalent of, you know, sitting as a guest on the Jerry Springer show. It, it really has. Who knew? Like, who knew? <laughs> you know, we're going for oranges and, um, you know, eye cream and we're walking out with squabbles and bruises. And what I think you're referencing, Laura, is the fact that our primitive primal instincts are completely activated right now. There's a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is the part of the brain responsible. It's in our limbic system and it's responsible for the fight, flight, freeze response. It is the basic sort of reptilian, when I'm scared, when I perceive danger, I run. When I'm scared, when I perceive danger, I fight. Or when I'm scared and I see danger, especially for trauma survivors, I freeze. And this is an adaptive tool to some extent, but we are becoming increasingly ill-equipped to differentiate between real and feigned danger. A lot of that has to do with the fact that our resources for coping are being so compromised. We simply don't have the bandwidth, if you will, to effectively process and navigate through the media that we are coming across, the social media that we are coming across, and our own internal responses to all of these socio-political health and really interpersonal stressors that we as a world right now really are navigating through. That part of the brain that is responsible for generating the fight, flight, freeze response is really overworked and it's, you know, running on empty. That makes a lot of sense. Not to mention, you know, a lot of us are completely exhausted or we're strapped with responsibilities that we're not used to having. And this has gone on for such a long time. I think it gets easy to start to feel like this is going to be the new normal, that maybe our lives are never going to return to um, 
a, not even, I, I don't even think that anyone expects them to go back to what they were like before, but to this place where maybe we're experiencing regular amounts of relief and joy as we were before. And what do you, I mean, I can imagine you have clients who reflect that back at you, given that 50% of Americans are reporting feeling a sense of depression right now. What do you respond when people bring that to you? Well, you know, I, I think there's a, this is the first time in my practicing as a, you know, mental health um, provider that I am experiencing many of the same features of uh, trauma, really, and fear that my clients are. So it's sort of this vicarious re-traumatization, if you will. And so I have to be really mindful of separating my own struggle and my own journey through a very real visceral fear-based dynamic right now from from what I'm getting you know from my clients one of the things that I think we as just a human species crave is an element of certainty and an element of containment and one of the most jarring features of covid and, and this entire pandemic and quarantine is the fact that there's been a lack of certainty. There's also been a lack of clarity. We're receiving many mixed messages. And in the midst of this lack of clarity and, and sort of unified message about what's happening, what we need to do, what we ought to do, I think we're becoming increasingly frenzied in our quest for some level of certainty. And so we're sort of creating our own convictions of certainty in areas where they don't really exist. You know, I have patients who will say things like, you know, I, I'll be back in the office in January, or, you know, I'm, I'm planning a trip abroad next May because I, you know, ascertain that that will be a time where it's safe to travel again and when some of these travel bans will be lifted. But the truth of the matter is we just don't know. And learning how to navigate and tolerate this sense of uncertainty and the unknown is the work that I'm really invested in doing with my patients. How do we sit through the unknown, the terrors, the apprehensions of uncertainty and remain connected to the present, remain connected with a whole series of ambiguous emotions because the, the reality is certainty is a myth, right? We never had certainty to begin with, but this, no, exactly. right. So this just further intensifies a, a, you know, inconvenient truth that has existed forever. I think, you know, listen, I look at myself and I feel like I'm pretty good at dealing, like sitting in discomfort, dealing with uncertainty in my regular day-to-day -day life. And even this, just this prolonged sense of not knowing what's going to happen next and how things are going to turn out. I mean, it could drive anybody completely crazy. And on top of that, you know, I'm going out to dinner with a friend of mine on Thursday. This is going to be the first time that I've gotten dinner with a girlfriend at a restaurant since early March. And I was a fairly social creature before all this happened. And I'm just thinking about how excited I am to see her and just sharing a meal with a friend. And we used to have those types of interactions very frequently, which is how it's supposed to be. Since we don't have those types of interactions and those moments of relief, 
we're stuck in, you know, the sort of work, if you will, all the time. We're stuck in the shit. <laughs> we're stuck yeah. in just dealing, like dealing with our own, we're in our own heads. We're not able to get out of them as easily or just have fun. And I think so much of what we're seeing on Facebook is people are sitting around. I mean, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. My screen time's gone way up in this pandemic. We're oh, sitting yeah. around on our phones and we're not out there living our lives because there's really nothing really to do. I mean, even though things have opened up more, not necessarily in Los Angeles, but where we are, it's like things still really aren't blowing and going. It's very difficult to distract yourself or to just go out. A very famous um, author on relationships once said that, you know, romance is an anesthetic, that a marriage is the work, like it's the healing, it's the process of working things out and growing together. And the romantic stuff, that's sort of anesthetizing us from actually doing the work and it's supposed to be there. And it's sort of like right now, we don't have any romance. We've got nothing taking us out of just this nitty gritty work of being alive and being human and not being in any amount of control. And I know that I see myself just grasping for that. And I see other people doing the same. I'm seeing a lot more sort of religious convictions and communication where a lot of apocalyptic thinking. Have you noticed that? I have. I think that people tend to gravitate toward extremes when experiencing distress and uncertainty. Because the thing about extremes is that there's a conviction, there's a certainty, there's a clarity there. And and look, you mentioned something really crucial, which is the fact that we are strained socially, we are disconnected socially, and there's a myth that we can access a, a greater level of connection via social media. And what we're finding- I think it's the opposite of true. Totally the opposite, right? Increased yeah. screen time leads not to an increased sense of belonging, but- we are in this comparative dismay. We're comparing our insides to other people's outsides. And that and can constantly, be constantly. And there's this idea that like, thank God we have social media to be connected during this time. And I think in the beginning I felt that, and I still, it's not a black and white issue. I think it's something that we really need, but we need to have boundaries around it. Correct. But our boundaries are compromised. Our ability to differentiate between this feels really nurturing and connecting versus, ooh, I spent six hours on Instagram today. It's probably time to connect with my husband, wife, partner, self. Sounds like you've had experience spending six hours on Instagram. I'm glad to know I'm not alone. Or maybe you're just like making a hypothetical here. But um, it's not hypothetical. You know, it, <laughs> there and you know it's so funny I was, I was in bed with my husband a couple of nights ago and we were both sitting next to each other eating a meal there's the television is on in the background we're both on our phones and it's just ridiculous I mean it's kind of the it's ridiculous activity but we're, we're really looking to anesthetize and numb our discomfort through disconnection and dissociation and it's not going to get us there. It's not. It's not. It's not. And I've been thinking a lot about our environment because like using our phone obsessively is sort of like an addictive behavior, right? But like it's so prompted by the environment around us. And I think a lot of us, I'm motivated to just say, okay, I'm going to set up. This is the amount of time I'm allowed to spend on my phone every day, but I'm not going to change anything about the way that I'm living my life right now. So what ends right. up happening, because I can't. So what ends up happening is I'm not able to meet that expectation and I'm kind of disappointed in myself and it doesn't really help. I left my house. We went to Colorado for a month 
month. I've talked about this on another episode and I didn't have my phone with me the entire time. I usually didn't know where it was. I was with my family. We were playing outside. Life has kind of gone on in a different way in Colorado than it has here in Texas. And it was like, just like that, you know, my screen time was back down to like practically nothing after being six or seven hours while I'm at home, which is obscene. I've never had screen time like that before. And I came home and it was like right back, right? Because I'm back. I'm back in this environment where I don't have as much connection with people. And so today I have like, you know, I made a sort of schedule for myself where I was just more cognizant of everything that I had to get done. So when I was tempted to pick my phone up, I could just pick another thing on the list and focus on finishing it and doing it really well instead of being half-assed and on my phone the whole time. But I think it really just does give us this illusion of connection. And then we're seeing so many, we're all seeing something different. So I just watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix and it Mm -hmm. talks about how all of us have a different Facebook newsfeed. We're all seeing different information. We all have different truths. And those truths are primed to show different results and and to autofill based on our geographic region, based on our socioeconomic status, based on our, um, you know, sexual orientation, gender. It's, It's quite compelling. It's quite compelling. And, you know, I go out into the world and I would never really strike up a political chat with a stranger, but my husband, it's his favorite thing to do. So we'll be out at a restaurant and he'll reach over to the table next to us and start chatting with them and asking them about their beliefs about this or that. And and everyone's so cordial and so willing to talk to him. And they might even have a completely opposing opinion to whatever it is he's sharing, but they're able to have this really nice conversation. And I'm like, how interesting is this, that when we get in front of each other, we're not necessarily this aggressive. In some cases we are, but it's like social media has really exacerbated that. So tell me a little bit about conflict resolution. It's something that not not many of us are taught. And I know that because having children, I have a four-year-old daughter and I I get nervous when she goes on play dates and I'm going to have to help her work things out with her friends that she's fighting with because it's all new for me too. No one taught me any of this. So I'm kind of learning it right along with her. And um, I want to know from you what it is that we can do to resolve some of the conflicts that we're having that are induced by this time that we're living in. That's an amazing, amazing question. So you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's unbelievable the amount of you know trigonometry and calculus that we're exposed to before we leave high school. But when it comes to conflict and conflict resolution, we're really kind of thrown to the wolves, so to speak. You know, a great friend and colleague of mine, Jen Mann, uh, who authored a book called The Relationship Fix. She uh, attests to the idea, which I certainly ascribe to myself, that conflict and conflict resolution are the building blocks to intimacy. So, you know, when I go out with couples or when I engage with couples and they say, oh, we never fight at all. What that suggests to me is not a lack of conflict, but ultimately, ultimately a lack of depth in the relationship, a lack of depth in topics that are being discussed and explored, and really a lack of truly knowing your partner, one's partner. So, you know, conflict and conflict resolution to me are suggestive of closeness, of intimacy, and of a willingness to really get vulnerable in relationships. The way in which we navigate conflict, though, is, you know, is, is means everything. So some tips and tools that I recommend for navigating through conflicts, because you're right, it's amplified right now. We're working from home. Our schedules are shifted. 
we're really getting to know our partners in ways that we probably wish we didn't. So in general, I suggest that couples prioritize the relationship. And by the way, this is not just specific to couples. This can apply to, you know, a close friend or a roommate or family relationships, because a lot of us are finding ourselves back in our, you know, nest with family and back home. We may have lost jobs. We might need to care for a family member who is experiencing ill health, so on and so forth. So prioritize the relationship rather than the issue or the topic that's generating the conflict. In the long run, the relationship matters more than the argument. And if it doesn't feel like that's the case, because I'll have people argue with that concept that the relationship really doesn't matter more than the argument. If that doesn't feel, um, or if that does feel like it's the case, I think it's important to focus on why that is, why someone is willing to compromise or jeopardize the strength of the relationship for the sake of proving a point or winning. It doesn't mean that we roll over and cave, but if everything is a significant and important issue, then nothing is a significant and important issue. So it's important to really know what really matters what we're willing to fight for, and what we're willing to make concessions about. Not everything can be a level 10 in terms of intensity or need. The second piece is, and I encourage folks to focus on the present. You know, I say all the time, if you're looking to dig up the past, consider becoming an archaeologist. But it's not going to fare well for the relationship long-term to delve into historical issues, right? We have the history channel for that. But it's really important <laughs> to stay present-minded and to address the issue on tap. There's a primitive drive that we all have to let's look at the ledger, let's look at the records, let's go back in history and point out all of the examples of injustice that we feel, all of the examples of you know perceived flirtation with someone else that we experience. But this puts our partners and loved ones on the defense, and it also compromises our ability to synthesize new information and to work toward developing a collaborative solution, which is ultimately, in theory at least, what we're looking for. So, you know, I I mentioned picking our battles. Everything can't be the end of the world. And it's important to know when to concede and, and when to really stand your ground. And that's more important now than ever, because when we engage in conflict, if it becomes more charged and more sort of vicious, it ends up impacting our own self-worth. It negatively affects our sense of self, and it impedes upon our ability to feel close to our partners, which, by the way, effective conflict and conflict resolution can result in increased intimacy. So we don't want to compromise the ability for conflict resolution in a healthy way to serve as a vehicle for increased connection. I think in a time also where everything is, there are so many issues that are brought into the forefront right now that are polarizing that we never even considered, like even a few years ago. And so if you're discussing those issues in your home, it can feel like everything is that important. It can feel like everything needs to be debated and every, and so I think what's also important right now is that we take a moment to consider that even the things that really do feel like they're that important 
it actually might be better not to get into a huge confrontation about them right now because this is a very charged time, you know, to put the emphasis or the focus on having peace as much as possible. And, you know, what you keep saying about intimacy, you know, being like when you're able to resolve conflict constructively, it actually fosters more intimacy in a relationship. I think about, you know, that old saying, you can be right or you can be happy, that the hardest thing about being in a relationship is being with, you're never going to share every single opinion with another human being. You might not even share that many of your opinions with another human being. And intimacy is really being close to somebody, I think, in spite of that and finding a way to share your life. I mean, it's vulnerable. We for, we, we don't understand like vulnerability is sharing your self with someone who doesn't necessarily agree with everything that you have to say, but finding a way to make it work, that's a risky, vulnerable thing to do. Absolutely. And I think we sometimes guard against vulnerability when we feel unsafe through increases in conflict and caustic conflict, not conflict that's constructive, but name calling, pointing the finger, digging up the past, And so forgiveness is a huge piece of healthy conflict and conflict resolution. You know, when we hold on to resentments, invariably it's it's self-punishing. And it's also the equivalent of drinking poison and hoping that the other person gets sick. And ultimately it's a, a tremendous barrier toward feeling a sense of safety, containment, and closeness to our partners. We also project onto our partners the tone of conflict that we internalize, right? The way that we fight with our partners tends to be a mirror image of the way that we engage in self-conflict, that internal narrative. And so all the more reason that we can actually affect the self-talk and chatter in a constructive way by modulating and working on being more compassionate in conflict with our partners. I think everything you just said is almost the exact opposite of what I see happening on social media every day. Like the idea of forgiveness or focusing on the present, like every, every meme I see, I just saw a meme shared about like the economy ever since, you know, Clinton was in office. And it's like, we can't, we can't have these conversations. And so many of me, so much, so much of me just thinks like social media provokes this. So what is a good amount of time when we are living in the normal world, if you will? Yes. What what is a good balance with social media and reality? Because it's an amazing tool. You know, it really is. But it's also kind of zapping us a little bit. It is. You know, I I think it's hard to say a specific, you know, time frame. You know, for some 45 minutes might feel more than enough. For others, it might not even represent a... Um, you know, a, a purview of a reasonable their, amount of time to get things done, especially if you use it for work. Purposes. Exactly. I think it's really more about how we're feeling when we're utilizing social media. Mm. If we are feeling anxious, if we're feeling scared, if we're feeling sad, that's probably not the time to turn on Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or, you know, whatever, you know, Pinterest. It's probably an opportunity to journal, to get connected with self, to, dare I say it, meditate for five minutes, to reflect on your goals for the day, 
I also think people walk into social media not really knowing what they're looking to get out of it. So it's kind of like the equivalent of someone getting on Tinder or Hinge or whatever and saying, oh, gosh, it's not really working out for me. But when you ask them what they're looking for, they might say that they're looking for, you know, a husband or wife. But you look at their profile and it's certainly not... Um, you know, a profile consistent with someone who's looking for a long-term relationship. It might be more sexually provocative. So I think being really clear on motivation and what one is looking to get out of a social media experience is key. If it's being utilized as a way to feel more connected, I think it's really important to be judicious in the amounts of time that we're spending and to be drawn toward accounts that are more congruent with our internal values, right? And and to ensure that the tones that we're using on social media and the way that we communicate our opinions or beliefs are congruent and consistent with the types of things that we would say in real life and in the tone that we would say things in real life. We've become so afraid as a society to share the truth And I think especially with all of the more recent racial injustices that are being called to the surface and that we're becoming more clear about, we're almost terrified of speaking openly and vulnerably. Now, that doesn't mean saying everything that's on our mind and and kind of letting it all, you know, be out there and, and treating it like it's a forum for our own personal talk shows. I think we've got to be respectful and kind and abide by, you know, the basic rule of do unto others as, as we would like done to us. But we can't be afraid of sharing our truths and speaking from the heart as long as the intention is pure and positive. Well, I love that you don't have a one size fits all prescription. It's like really dependent on what you're experiencing at the time. Right before we left on vacation this summer, I felt like I was spending a lot of time on social media, but that it was really contributing to my life and my sense of happiness. And I had no problem with it. And ever since we got home, you know, there's been a lot more going on in the world. Um, I'm navigating a lot with my kids going back to school, what have you. I definitely need more time away from my screen and it's not contributing as much to my happiness. It's not something that I want to get rid of completely. But I think it's something that all of us need to reevaluate from time to time because we forget that we have these devices in front of us that are huge parts of our lives and to reevaluate constantly who it is that we're following. There have been incredibly inspirational, wonderful people that I have followed and then later decided to unfollow, not because they became any less wonderful, but because their message just didn't speak to me anymore. And it kept me rooted in my past. Um, It kept me rooted in stuff that maybe I had gone through, but I needed to let go of, you know, some things we need to put down simply because they're heavy, right? So it just didn't make sense for me to be following those people anymore. And I think regularly taking an inventory is super important. I also really wanted to talk to you, speaking of airing our opinions on social media, not airing them. I think there's a lot of focus right now on on saying things the right way. And, um, some might call that political correctness. I've also, I've always shied away from that because at a certain point I really valued political correctness. It was for me tied with respect and respecting other people. I think now it's kind of gone the other way. There are a lot of people who have opinions that aren't even necessarily unconventional that might be shared with many people, but people feel as though they're isolated or alone in their opinions because there's only two 
buckets they're really allowed to fall into. And you and I were talking off the podcast a little bit about this and how that can really make people feel a certain way and what we can do about it. So tell me a little bit about kind of how that's happened and how it actually backfires and doesn't necessarily cause the most productive outcome. Yeah, it's a great point, you know, and and it's kind of a nuanced answer. There's no real right or wrong. I think in general, when you or I read something on social media and it generates a tone of anger and it feels quite caustic, more often than not, that's typically the motivation of the person who's writing this kind of stuff. Generally speaking, it's the people who have, um, you know, really harsh, critical, sort of nasty, overly um, emotionally charged opinions that they are publicly expressing on social media who tend to fit the personality profile of someone who feels incredibly muted or dismissed in their own personal life. And they're looking to generate a charge and some type of reaction, even if the reaction is... Um, quite poor. You know, it's sort of like the child who's tantruming. Reinforcement is reinforcement. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, favorable reinforcements or nasty reinforcement. It's still met with a sense of validation. And so my encouragement is that we really be mindful of not engaging in conflict or heated debate with someone who's posting things that really appear to stem from a place of this sort of primitive, look at me, I need to be heard, I'm, you know, my voice will be noticed. I think it's, it's um, important to be judicious about who we're reinforcing on social media and in real life. You know, the more energy that we associate and um, invest in these accounts or, or you know, social media figures who are really just kind of brewing and spilling all over the place. And it's clear that they're really looking more for a spotlight rather than a vehicle through which to express their honest, you know, deeply held opinions. I think we've just got to be really mindful about not reinforcing that type of banter. It doesn't mean, you know, passively liking or, you know, being complicit about our beliefs and opinions, but I think you're right. Muting stories, muting posts, and unfollowing people. I think we've got to be very thoughtful about who we're surrounding ourselves with in our lives in person and certainly via social media as well. Do you feel like we're kind of collectively waking up around this? Because I think some of it is starting to get really stale. I mean, I think even the people who participated in it are starting to think, you know what, this is just sort of this machine that's created to get me arguing. And most of us are relatively reasonable people. Do you think we're kind of starting to to figure that out? I think we're starting to figure it out on a cognitive, logical level. But the trouble is, is that the people who are posting these types of um, sort of nasty, charged comments or statements, and the people who are engaging in a fight via social media tend to be charged emotionally. And it brings us back to the amygdala, the limbic uh, uh, system in our brains, which is responsible for the fight, flight, freeze uh, approach and response. And that is a part of our brains that is not logical. So we can know something logically, but when it comes to you know matters of the heart and emotion, we can be incredibly illogical. 
I think we get it, but I also think that we continue to contribute to this beast of a machine by engaging in banter with people who are just totally unreasonable. You know, if I were walking down the street and somebody made a harsh, outlandish, ridiculous statement to me, I wouldn't respond, not because it's not um, accurate, right? Although it may not be, but because there's no purpose in engaging with someone who's that unreasonable and who's that caustic and harsh, right? It's more, it's so easy in real life to say, oh, you know, they're experiencing mental health problems, or this is somebody who might be impaired or whatnot. When it comes to social media, because of the veil of anonymity, I think we're less clear on what represents a logical viewpoint, what is something that should affect us versus this is just banter that's off the wall and I'm not even going to respond to it. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I think where there might be something that would happen in person because we're behind a screen, you know, our primal instincts, they come out and we argue and we think that these things need to be fought until the end. Um, It's much more challenging to let them go. I think our ego kind of takes over, especially depending on where we are personally, when we're looking at some of those types of arguments. Um, Let's talk a little bit about just general mental health distress that's going on right now. I mentioned in the beginning of this episode that we've seen an 18% or potentially more increase in depression in the United States. You said about 11 or 12% um, are reporting a difficulty sleeping as well as increasing their food and alcohol consumption. What are the long-term effects of this? And is this something that's just going to end when the pandemic ends or when we're able to get back into a bit of a normal flow of life? Or are we going to have this sort of collective trauma that we're dealing with? Is it somewhere in the middle? What is that going to look like going forward? It's a great question. If I knew the exact answer and prediction, I would, you know, have a, I'd be on Oprah right now. You would. Um, (laughs) And, you know, if you're listening, I am available for appearance with Oprah. Um, (laughs) Broad body research links social isolation and loneliness to poor mental health. And you're absolutely right. Data from late March shows that significantly higher shares of people who were sheltering in place uh, reported negative mental health effects. And this results from worry or stress related to COVID. Um, you know, also people who are have lost their jobs. There's a financial restructuring in many cases. There's a relationship restructuring in many cases. And I think we are going to be experiencing mental health effects from COVID for you know many years. That doesn't mean that we're going to be in distress necessarily mental health wise for many years, because I think our coping skills are going to develop. We're going to become a bit more um, Teflon-like in our ability to not be so easily impacted by charged media or by, um, you know, just um, a lot going on. You know, there's between the wildfires in California to many of the racial injustices appropriately so being highlighted right now in our media and in our world to, of course, the pandemic, not to mention the upcoming elections. I think we've all just sort of had it. You know, one of the things that I think is really, really crucial is to not isolate, 
you know, we can be physically distanced, but socially connected. This idea of social distancing, I think, is really um, something that's a bit of a, of a misnomer. I don't think we have to be socially distanced. I think we have to be physically distanced and, and socially probably closer than ever to our flock. So being more creative about ways in which we're accessing connection. You know, Zoom, it's new. It's something that we're not accustomed to. Screen time can be very, you know, weary on the eyes and on our mental health too, but it's not going away. It is a wave of the future. And I think we've all got to become a bit more flexible cognitively in the ways in which we're able to access interpersonal connection and the ways in which we're able to respond to our own mental health needs. There are wonderful resources online in communities, um, both paid services and also for free um, groups, support groups, mental health-led groups, or just peer-led groups to be able to equip people with resources and a sense of community. Isolation and the feeling of doing this alone are really disempowering and feeling like we've found our tribe, so to speak, and can connect with like-minded people who have found a way to healthily and constructively navigate through this. I think that's the real key here. Do you feel like as a psychologist that people who are perhaps struggling before this pandemic started have had some of those issues really brought to the forefront and actually maybe been able to experience healing as a result of the pandemic? Yes. And, you know, one of the things um, I have a patient as an example who has severe obsessive compulsive disorder and they'll routinely say to me, that they've never felt more validated in their lives. Right? Oh, everyone's like obsessively washing their hands. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, right. You know, and, and in all seriousness though, I think it does call into a greater level of, of awareness. The fact that we're going to have to figure out a way to heal through this. The pandemic's not going away tomorrow. The uncertainty isn't going away tomorrow. I think we will be on our toes and and sort of scanning for danger so much uh, more than prior to COVID, just as a result of the immediacy of the pandemic and, and the sense of not really getting the full truth. So yeah, I mean, people who had baseline increases in mental health symptomology before COVID, I think to a certain extent, this is in many cases, their time to shine. It's it's validating. In other cases, unfortunately, you know, in substance abuse, I also think people have been more isolated. Getting to in person twelve step meetings is, you know, in most cities, not a thing. And so that's amplified connection. And while there are Zoom and and other you know telehealth meetings, a lot of people are reporting it's just not the same as face to face human connection. I can understand why. I can understand why. And I know that whenever I'm personally going through something very challenging in my life, I always kind of think of it as like, this is my harvest seat. Like this is before the harvest season. This is when I am getting the tools that I need for my harvest season, for my good time. Um, and it's a challenging time. But once I get to the other side of it, I'm going to have what I need to really and truly treasure what the goodness in my life. And and I wonder if as a psychologist and the experiences that you've had, do you feel when you look at this and you zoom out, 
do you feel like ultimately we're going to be headed for a better place because of the resilience that we've gained during this time? I, I really do. You know, it brings me back to the book Man's Search for Meaning, which was authored by a man who looked at Auschwitz and Holocaust survivors. And generally speaking, there were two clusters and groups of folks. There were people who were totally just lost. They became emotionally crippled, understandably, as a result of these harrowing experiences, being starved, losing family members, being in a perpetual state of terror. And then there were the cluster of people who found a sense of meaning and purpose and were able to create a framework for, you know, just finding life and finding purpose in the pains and trials and tribulations of existence, turning, you know, lemons, if you will, into lemonade. And while I'm certainly not, you know, comparing the Holocaust to COVID, in some ways, I think our ability to reframe this as a learning opportunity, as an experience to be able to grow through tribulation, that to me is what will differentiate those of us who are really survivors of this experience and those of us who continue to remain in a victim status as a result of factors outside of our ability to control. So it is all about perspective. And look, I think as a society and certainly as human beings individually, we tend to not grow through, you know, uh, ice cream and days to Disneyland. We tend to grow through painful experiences. If you or I look back on our lives, for me personally, it was those moments of greatest conflict, greatest agony, greatest internal struggle that when navigated through to the end, I now reflect back on, and those have been the most pivotal growth opportunities in my life. I totally hear you. And I keep thinking of this as, as that. I mean, I certainly don't feel like I've ever been in this long of a stretch of struggle. Um, but I know, you know, many of us have, and it's definitely not uncommon. And I think, you know, my husband and I were talking to somebody the other day, they asked us how we were doing being back in Houston. And we were talking about how exhausted we are because our kids have to be at school so early. And it doesn't really correlate with our lives like working from home right now at all. So we're all waking up like super early as a family to get like our tiny little children to school. And it doesn't really make any sense. And he was like, our whole world is kind of revolved around was created for the industrial revolution. You know, the fact that kids go to school as early as they do, we get in our cars, we drive to an alternate location. It was all about people being together at an office. And the technological revolution didn't ever get a chance. Like it, We were still completely retrograde when it came to technology. And then COVID happened. And I've, I've just seen like technology taking over in all these areas. We're being able to do things from home that we used to have to drive into the office to do. And our world is just kind of playing catch up. So I think ultimately, we'll be in a place that makes a lot more sense for the world that we live in today. I mean, I hope that my teacher, my, my, my daughter's teachers aren't listening to this. But like one day, you know, I hope we live in a world where starting the day at that type of ungodly hour for a preschooler might not make as much sense because given the world that we live in, it kind of doesn't. I mean, with everybody working remotely, and if you don't have to get into an office, albeit some people do right now, but I imagine that number, you know, really decreasing eventually. Yes. And hopefully like the rhythm and the pace at which we live our lives can also improve. Right now is just the painful part of all that, it I is. guess you could say. 
It is, but I, I also think it's such beautiful fodder and soil to be able to reframe struggle and strife. This is a, a time where interpersonally we can begin to reference and utilize conflicts as a vehicle to strengthen our relationships, where we can rebuild and refuel a sense of connection with our partners, even with ourselves, and where we can really alter, you know, just patterns and behaviors and habits that are no longer serving us well. I think we've all needed this collective pause. What we choose to do at this time and how we choose to create meaning from this experience will, again, differentiate those of us who can regard this as a healing phase and as a reboot phase in our lives. And those of us who I think will really experience, you know, amplified mental health symptoms you know, for, for, you know, a, a long time. So, and I, I think it's definitely more than just how we're making sense of this experience. I certainly don't want to discount the role of true mental illness. And, and now is a time where I think if somebody is struggling and is feeling disconnected and is feeling alone, this is more than just, you know, talking to your partner and, you know, putting, picking yourself up by your bootstrap, so to speak. This is a time where I think we've really got to lean into all available resources and you know it takes a village it does it takes a village and we we have to have patience for one another and compassion for one another which is something you also talk about so much on your instagram which i'm looking at right now and being reminded that you are over there on the west coast with all of those fires and everything going on how is it over there right now you know thankfully in los angeles where i am it's actually not too terrible, but I do have family and friends in Northern California, and the situation is quite dire. So um, they're now saying that that there's um, an expectation that some of the smoke and, and um, air quality issues are expected to last well into October. So we're really, um, our you know, hearts and thoughts and prayers are, are with them, and you know, it's it's one thing after another. Well, I am. Jewish. And one of the beliefs that many Jewish people share is that one ought to be a light unto the world, that that's what we're here for. And so in all of the smoke and the darkness and the fog, I'm so grateful that you are there because you are such a light, Josh. And I'm so grateful to have gotten to talk to you today. Laura, I'm so appreciative. And listen, I think we are going to be pen pals for life or at least through COVID. I agree. This will not be your only time on this show, Josh, and I appreciate all of your insight into why we are the way we are right now and the hope that we have and all that we have to look forward to. Um, if you would like to learn more about Dr. Josh Mermelli, um, based in Los Angeles, you can follow him on Instagram at, at Dr. Josh Mermelli, also drjoshmermelli.com. And I want to give a shout out to my sister-in-law, Erica Rose, for connecting the two of us. I really appreciate you. And I'm so glad I have a new friend in you, Josh. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Look Ma No Hands. I am your host, Laura Max Rose, and I look forward to joining you again next time. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Look Ma No Hands. I'm Laura Max Rose, and you can follow me on Instagram at Laura Max Rose to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and the behind the scenes of my life with my own two daughters. If you like this episode and are enjoying Look Ma No Hands, the best way you can help me spread the word is to leave a review on Apple Podcast. This is the single best way to help me reach a larger audience and share these conversations with everyone who needs to hear them. If you love something you just heard, you can also take a screenshot of the episode and share it on social media. 
There might be someone you know who needs to hear what you just heard, and that's another great way to make sure they do. Thank you for joining me every week. I'm grateful for each and every one of you. More next time. Mama.